Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You have to take care of every little piece is what I'm trying to say. And not every piece all at once. You know, that's especially true with scripts because you spend so much time in the wilderness with a script trying to come up with even what the hell it is that you can, it can make you discouraged so you don't ever attempt it. And uh, you just have to keep, okay, today I, you know, I managed to get three good lines in that character's mouth. Lines that you may take out two weeks later. Uh, you know, a month from now, I figured out that the setting is this. You know, some days you're like, I got eight hours and I wrote, you know, 10 pages. Every day is totally different. And um, it's all progress. That's really, I guess, what I have to, had to tell myself over and over. And Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm laughing because I am uh, sitting across from a man who I haven't seen in a long, long time. And it's a very, it's a very odd feeling when you haven't seen somebody for a long time. Um, it's an especially uh, more odd feeling when you haven't seen somebody for a long time. And that's a really, really, really great man. And um, normally the reason why you don't see people for a long time is because they're not a great person. Um, And you try to justify your distance from them by thinking to yourself why they're wrong for your life or why you shouldn't talk to them or why you shouldn't have anything to do with them while you're lying in the fetal position in a dark room in your man cave. But uh, for the purpose of this interview, uh, Mike Royce is somebody I will share with all of you, is one of the most amazing uh, people that that I've ever come in contact with in comedy, and I'm going to tell you why, which will probably be a six degrees of separation story that I normally start off these podcasts with. And just to share with you uh, before I start, I, again, I want to thank all of you for um, 
the support of this uh, show. I, I I don't know if I verbalize this or not, and I'm going to. Um, and maybe it's uh, giving too much information about me as a person or my life or my business, but one of the most amazing things about being a manager is that you can work with an artist and you they have their checklist of things they want to have happen in their their life or you could call it a bucket list or whatever and they'll sit down with you as a manager and they'll go over it and maybe if you're a young comedian maybe you're at the top of the list is you just want to you just want to be a regular at the comedy cellar in Greenwich Village and or maybe one of your things on your list is you want to do late show with David Letterman or the Fallon show. Now, maybe you want to get a guest set in on law and order, which filmed in New York or, or just anything like that. And if you're a, a, a let's say you are a comedian, uh, if you're of a larger ilk, maybe you want, uh, your own series that you star in and you write and create, or maybe you want to do a movie with a significant director like Michael Mann or, or somebody of that nature, or Quentin Tarantino. Maybe you want to do an hour special. Maybe you want your own reality series. That's like a hybrid kind of thing. Maybe you want to just write a screenplay and sell it, whatever it might be. And, um, you know, that's something as a manager when you're working with an artist, it's an amazing thing because they give you the tools, you give them the blueprint, and together you work together to accomplish those goals. And when it happens, whether you're a manager like, like myself and you, let's say, with somebody's talent, you have them film a character reel for Saturday Night Live and in my relationships, I send them off to Marcy Klein and, and Lauren Michaels and, and Lindsay Shookus and the, and the team there of, of the people that have been there in the past and who are there now, the new people. And you test for the show and then you get the show. It's an amazing thing that happens as your merit manager. It's like it's an artist. It's like, it's like heroin. If I ever did heroin, it would be like that kind of thing. And I know this is a long-winded way of saying it, but it's an amazing feeling. We talked about going back to the man cave and sitting in the fetal position and having reevaluating your life of how you are with a person. But this is the opposite extreme where you, you do that and you're like, wow, I, I did something that helped somebody with their talent and my talent. I was able to help somebody with my skill set and then inspire them in any way possible with their skill set to get that that thing on their list checked off and and launch them up in a certain area and then when you think about it you realize that you're only allowed in that situation to help one person to inspire one person and yes, if somebody gets Saturday Live, they get on the show and they get to do their thing and they reach millions and they inspire millions. And that's a wonderful thing. But just for the sake of the artist, for myself, I only uh, am able to 
help one person at a time. And one of the reasons why I want to do this podcast is I wanted to be in a situation where no matter what profession you were in, I could be a conduit with these amazing guests to help not just one person, but to help millions of people. And I, you know, when you set out and you do something like all of you in the audience, you, you have a goal that you want to accomplish. You start off at zero, zero and you have nothing. And when we started this podcast, we had nothing myself and you as an audience con included, you weren't there. And, and what you hope is that in any kind of content you create or anything you do in the business that America speaks and America or the people tell you what means something to them and what doesn't. And I guess in a long five minute diatribe that I just had there, what I'm trying to say to you all is that I had a goal on my checklist and I didn't have a manager helping me facilitate it. All I had to help me facilitate it was really all I needed, which were extraordinary guests, tremendous producers that helped me. And, and I get to be in a situation where I can help all of you uh, accomplish your goals through osmosis. And it's, a, it's an amazing feeling. And, and getting your emails and your tweets and your Facebook messages and your Federal Express packets that come to me that are not Federal Express packets. They're just delivered to me. Or It's just, it's incredible. And I, I'm, I'm so grateful and thankful to you. And so I'm going to segue here into this uh, thing I want to say. When I was in New York, I came to New York from Boston. I... Um, for those of you who don't know my crazy story, I had a life in Boston. I was booking a number of different uh, comedy clubs and venues all across New England. I had a, a great thing going. I had a comedy club there called Play It Again Sam's. I was married. And as often happens in our lives as my grandma mother and father used to say you make plans and God laughs and you know my wife uh, passed away when I was 26 she was 23 and I just really I just had to get out of there even though things were going really well there I had to get out because there's that weird feeling when you're around people that know what's happened to you you feel this thing that you it's like even using the comedy example a lot of times you start as a stand-up comedian in a city and people have a feeling about you you might have made some mistakes in the beginning you some things might have happened to you and they always remember you as that kind of person and then when you leave town and go someplace else and start fresh it's amazing what happens when you come back to town a year or two later all of a sudden you're like walking on water and but you have to make that change sometimes and I couldn't face being around 
comedians who knew what had happened to me and it was a it was a weird thing it was almost like a positive negative thing if you've ever meet met people like that where you're at like a you know a hotel and somebody's like oh mr katz how are you what can i do for you can i help you is there anything whatever and and after a while you're like jesus christ this is your positivity is 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 damaging me and so that's what it was like in Boston. People were so wonderful and so supportive, but I didn't want to be reminded of it all the time. So I went to New York and I started a new life there and I opened up a comedy club in Greenwich Village. And what you slowly realize when you go to a town like New York City is that you have the good and the bad. You have the best and the worst of everything um, in every capacity. And a lot of artists that you meet along the way in the comedy clubs are, you know, they're troubled. They have a lot of issues. There's a lot of problems going on. Um, they're either uh, drinking too much. They're either um, doing too many drugs. Uh, they're self-destructive on stage with their audiences. Um, and they just have problems that just don't go away. And... I remember something uh, about a, a time in that process where I met a young man named Mike Royce. And when I met him and when he first started doing sets at my club, um, I was just blown away by what a nice person he was. And every time I'd go home after a set of his particularly that I liked or that I thought was interesting, I'd go home and I'd go back to my house in the fetal position as I went to bed and think to myself, how is it going to be possible for this guy to make it being so nice? I've never met anybody this nice in the business that's ever really truly gotten by all the sharks and the craziness and the difficulties that exist and the obstacles that happen along the way. Um, normally, you have to have that, that fire burning, that thing that's just so, so strong. Now, I didn't know Mike as well as other people, but my instinct told me, that he wasn't a fire-burning kind of guy. He was a guy who just let his talent speak for itself and thought in his mind that the way he was going to get to the next level was by doing great work, but also being a guy who everyone felt safe around. No matter how crazy it got, he would be the guy in the middle saying, everything's going to be okay. And I related to him, even though he doesn't know this, because I was that guy. Because I remember when bad things happened to people around me early on in my life, I was the kind of guy saying to my mom, mom, everything's going to be okay. Or my sister, everything's going to be okay. And it carried over to me. But I met so few artists that were like that. And Mike was somebody like that. But I just couldn't figure out how he was going to get through. And there was a show that started in New York that was an incarnation of Evening at the Improv during the boom called Caroline's Comedy Hour at um, 
Caroline Hirsch's club on Broadway, 49th and Broadway. And the shows were hosted by a number of different hosts. Again, uh, hosted by people who had their own idiosyncrasies and their own issues, and uh, but who were brilliant artists, Colin Quinn being one of them and the late Richard Jenny being the other one um, that I remember. And I remember hearing that Mike got a job writing and doing sketches for the show. And I thought to myself, wow, quietly this man figured out a way to navigate and ride off into a show that required somebody to be the everything's going to be okay guy. Because if you've ever been around the back behind the scenes of Caroline's Comedy Club, you know that there's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes that are very dramatic, especially in one of their first television productions they ever did for um, network television. And I always thought of Mike as a guy who would go in and be able to do this kind of thing if people trusted him. And he went in and he quickly asserted himself to be somebody very valuable. But the main thing that I remember is I always talk about creating holy shit moments and how do you create those moments and what you do. So he got in as a writer, but what he did was something that I'd never seen before and I've never seen since. And they were these sketches that to me were the funniest things to this day that I've ever seen in my life. And they were called Worst Elevator Fears. He didn't write them. He didn't write them. I'm sure that he was involved in doing something in them, though. Uh, and he was a character in them every single one where he was a guy in a suit, a businessman that would walk into an elevator. The doors would open. He'd walk in, the doors would close. And in literally like six to 10 seconds, some horrible thing would happen in the elevator. Either a woman would be pregnant or water would break. Or, you know, somebody would just go crazy and be mentally ill in the elevator or whatever it was. And... I watched these things and I laughed out loud in my house as I was on that couch again, watching him as an actor, not only a guy who helped write things for that show and helped put things together and ideas with great people, legendary people like Colin Quinn and Richard Jenny working in the greatest or one of the greatest comedy clubs in the world as a young person and one of the best produced stand-up comedy shows on television. But he figured out a way to get on camera, and when he got on camera, he blew me away and blew everybody away. And normally, as I tell these stories to open up these things, there's some kind of unique or special message or whatever it being. And I think if I have any message from this at all, Looking back all those years ago, I can honestly say that to all of you out there, if you work harder than everybody else, if you are not an asshole, if you treat people with respect 
and dignity and you are the everything's going to be okay guy, I can guarantee you, you will win in your career. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Look, Louis C.K., for those of you who listen to this podcast, you know, was the first management client I ever had in my entire life. And I love uh, Louis C.K. And I, I mean, he, we talked about the Boston Comedy Club. He was the first comedian on stage. He helped me set it all up. Uh, when he was 18, he was touring with Seinfeld. Yeah. He was always a special guy. He was the first guy I knew who had one of those Mac computers that was that square <laughs> beige thing <laughs> with the mouse that won the wire. Right. He was always creating. He was always doing things the way he wanted to do them. And, um, and I was always so blown away by him. And even when I watched Lucky Louie, and I watched that first uh, episode and I thought to myself, and you know, you have thoughts when you watch things and it's not a bad thing. If you're sitting again on that couch alone and you're watching something, you, you can't, you, you, whatever goes in, whatever pops into your head is what pops in your head. And it's not an insult. It's not anything. And I just thought to myself, uh, you know, cause I remember watching the entourage episode and then coming into that stylistically. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I know Louis wanted it this way. Right. But like my first show that I ever worked on, Action on Fox, it was an amazing show, but it had to follow Family Guy. Right. And tonally following Family Guy, an animated thing, it just wasn't worth And I think that's a, a big thing as well. And it, it and and I'm yes. gonna go back and, and correct myself about something. I do believe that if it were in the right place and sitting amongst the kind of shows that were the right tone or for it, it would never have mattered about Jerry Minor or Jim Norton or Rick Shapiro not being like uh, the type of actors like Edie Falco or James Gandolfini or Jeremy Piven. Right. That wouldn't have made any difference because I thought they were all funny and great and Louis directed them well and put... But I, I, I think you're right about that. And I, I is that is that you need that thing that America just sees something. It's like anything. It's like you're you don't want to you're not going to be like going to a beautiful restaurant and having filet mignon and then go to McDonald's and have the fucking, uh, you know, right. The French fries. It's like it would you no one would ever do that or, or you're not. And it's not that the Louis show was the French fries. I'm just saying because McDonald's has some of the best French fries. In the world. <laughs> but the but the point being is yeah. that it's just I love the show and I watched every fucking episode of that show. And uh, and but I realized as I was watching, I didn't see how it was going to work there and I wasn't big on looking at the ratings back there or anything like that. Which were pretty good. And so when it was canceled, <laughs> it to me, I thought to myself, oh my God, this is, this, is, this is bad. And I thought that way for you as well because 
I don't ever remember a show ever being canceled on HBO. It was like right. a factory of greatness. Yes. It was a factory of things that never went away until they wanted them to go away. And right. so I thought, this is going to be a hard one to recover from. And it's going to be a hard thing for Louie or Mike to ever get the keys to the kingdom again. But I thought it would be less hard for you because you are a component. You are a hireable component to be malleable right. with any situation, whether you create your own show or not. You're a network-friendly guy. Louis C.K., is a genius who is not a network friendly guy. It's like you do it my way or I don't do it right. for his FX show. It's yeah. legendary how it went about that. He went there, he pitched, he pitched the comedy central as well. They passed because they have executives get, get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to make notes. Yeah. Yeah. Hey everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. To write right. up, hey, you should do things this way, Louis. Hey, we don't really like the way that character's going. Yeah, really? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> At FX with John Landgraf and, um, and the team that he surrounded himself there, they said to him, okay, you do whatever the fuck you want, but we're only giving you $325,000 a show. If you want to do it in New York City... That's your business. We're giving you this. Now, $325,000 might sound like a lot to the people in the audience here, but that is like literally like probably 20% of what a sitcom costs to produce here in Los Angeles. Ray's show, without his salary and all the cast members, I can guarantee you at the end, it could have been $3 million an episode. And so he was being asked to do something for 10%, but the, the, the caveat was you can do it any way you want. There's no one going to be giving you any notes. There's nothing. You can do whatever. And so going back to the comedy cellar, you go to the comedy cellar <laughs> and see Louis C.K. in the Olive Tree Cafe right, right. in a booth on his computer, and you think, oh, he's just checking his emails. This is whatever. Hey, what are you doing? Uh, I'm editing my show. <laughs> yeah. you, you're, you're what? Yeah, I'm editing my show here. I'm, yep. Here's the graphics. I'm doing this here. I'm putting this out. I'm yep. like, you do. Yeah, I do it all right here on the thing. Yep. And 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 so, I don't. I know what the deal is, and I know what you're talking about. But you're a guy who never asks for a hundred percent control. 
that's why you're always going to get the opportunity to have another job and get another job because you're talent friendly and you're network friendly. Louis C.K. is going to get a certain number of gigs to do. And if one of them is successful, then he's going to continue and go again. It's like Larry David and Curb. Do you think there was a network executive giving him a note? Do you think John Stewart ever gets a note right, anymore right. from Comedy Central after winning 11 Emmy Awards in 13 years? <laughs> yeah, I think he's probably free and clear of the notes. Um, yeah, it's the... You know, Louie found exactly the perfect thing, and they had a good experience with uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which was a, sort of a similar, here's a little bit of money, and it worked out very well for them. That's kind of their thing over there, which is great. And um, I, you know, Louie found his calling because that show is, you know, but men, and But men of a certain age, you created with Ray, you get it on the air. And this is something that is, is, is always shocking to me, uh, and it's, one, it's an anomaly in our business. And when Mike sat down here, he, he you know, and he, he told me on an email as well, because I, I interviewed Steve <laughs> Coonan, who's one of the uh, head guys at uh, TBS and TNT. And he said, you know, did you ask him why you didn't pick up our show? And joking. I'm joking. And this is one of the things this is one of the things that's so crazy about our business sometimes. And I've spoken about it in sports as well. You know, occasionally, you know, there's a guy like Wes Welker who's the best guy out there. Everything's going great. You're on a great team, has money, and all of a sudden they just say, you know what, I know you have uh, 30 more catches than everybody else in the league, but we're just going to offer you half of what we paid you last year. And we don't really care if you're around or not. If you accept <laughs> the offer, fine. If you don't, you don't. And you have to realize that it's not going to happen there, and you don't know why. You can't figure out why. The only thing you can figure out is that you know you're always going to work after if you do great work. And this show was a critically acclaimed show. Um, it won uh, the Academy Award, the Academy Honors Award. I'm sorry, yeah, the Academy Honors Award, the Peabody Award. <clears throat> so. Tell me in your mind and Ray's mind after doing such a great show that was so well produced, looked great, well acted. Mm -hmm. The ratings were not spectacular, but they certainly were not anywhere near average or low. <laughs> well, it in, depends, your, yeah. in your mind and Ray's mind, what happened? Well, <laughs> it started at HBO. We developed it for HBO. That's what happened when I was getting offers after Lucky Louie is HBO heard we were working on this and swooped in and Chris Albrecht, I had a deal in five minutes. It was amazing. Yeah, who was on the podcast is an amazing guy. Yes. He's yes. now the president of stars. Is, yes. And uh, so we got to work on this instead of me having to work on some sitcom or, you know, some other thing that was not mine. HBO gave me money. <laughs> they gave you money. And, and just so our audience knows, again, we talk about relationships and how important relationships are in the business and how not to be an asshole and be a great person and keep up relationships. You look at Mike Royce's career. It's all about relationships. Bill Lawrence, he writes a script. He gets offered Spin City. Uh, Louis C.K., I'm sure he spent many nights working at the Comedy Cellar and many uh, nights working comedy with Louis. Louis had the confidence in him. Louis didn't pick anybody else. He picked you. He liked you. He wanted you. Ray, working with Ray at Princeton together, whatever. Right. Chris Albrecht, 
a lot of people don't know this, ran HBO Independent Productions, a studio that produced television. They were the production company with Letterman's Worldwide Pants that, that produced Everybody Loves Raymond. Lo and behold, who wants to be in business with Ray and Mike Royce again? Yes. Chris Albrecht, relationships. That's exactly right. And uh, he, you know, they heard heard we were working on this through Rory Rosegarden, Ray's manager. Who is a, an amazing manager and one of the greatest managers that has ever been in the business and will ever be in the business. Yes. And, and uh, we suddenly, I had a deal, not even Ray. I had a deal at HBO to work, basically to work on this thing with Ray. And we did it, you know, we developed it for a year and they eventually passed on it. Partly, I think, because that was when Chris Albrecht left. We had a, we got a little caught in the, I think, the transition. Also partly because I think what we developed, Ray and I kept saying to each other, really, for HBO? Like it didn't feel, it felt uh, different, but it didn't feel envelope pushing. In, in the way that HBO shows are. We were very content to take uh, advantage of the freedom that HBO would offer, and they were a great place to develop, but they eventually passed. And then TNT swooped in and uh, said, we, you know, we like it. We'll take it. And the, that was Michael Wright. And, uh, Michael Wright. And um, I didn't really meet Steve until later, but, um, but yeah, Michael Wright, Lila McCarthy was there. And Brent Michael Wright, has, you know, always uh, says this thing that I always quote and uh, is that... Uh, my philosophy with talent is you hire great artists and you get the fuck out of the way. <laughs> well, I have to say they did. Uh, that was a great, great place to work. They were extremely behind us. They only, they gave us very, I, mean, I don't when I say they gave us minimal notes, it's not like they're like afraid to give us notes or they just, they were behind our vision of it. <clears throat> even though I think they, it wasn't the vision they necessarily wanted for the show. They, you know, I think they expected something lighter. Um, we had a little bit of trouble getting picked up, you know, it wasn't an automatic deal, even though Ray was involved because what, what came out was a true dramedy. It was a drama with some comedy in it, but it wasn't what the premise may have suggested to some people, three guys approaching 50, maybe sowing some wild oats and it being kind of a romp of some sort. I think that's what everybody expected from Ray. I think that's part of the reason why the show ended up not continuing on TNT is it started with giant ratings. People came to it expecting a comedy. We had to like sort of flush out all the people who expected a comedy and, and, and lure people who liked what we were doing. That took some time. And uh, we didn't necessarily get there by the end of the second season. You know, I always, to me, we were sort of, TNT was fantastic because they supported us and they, they wanted to put, it, it didn't really fit, I think, their brand, but they were 100% game. And I think we ended up being kind of an indie movie on a blockbuster channel. You know, And again, one of the toughest things that you realize in anything um, in the entertainment business, especially on television, is it's very rare when America tunes into a show and in droves and the next week they don't tune in as much for it to come back. It's almost like, you know, you go to a restaurant and you expect a certain quality of service or a level of food or whatever it is, and you don't get it. You don't go back. 
You just don't go back. And if it's acceptable to you and you like it, you do go back. And it's the same with television shows. And like Mike said, they were expecting something from Ray's brand. Ray's brand was holy shit funny, not holy shit comedy and drama. (laughs) And it's the same when, when, when Jim Carrey or like one of Adam Sandler's to me, one of the greatest things he's ever done that I, I just can't speak about it enough is Punch Drunk Love. Just, or Ben Stiller, Permanent Midnight. Mm-hmm. Or Richard Lewis, and I'm escaping me, the movie he did where he played an alcoholic. Yes, I can't remember the name. I know what you're talking about, though. Yes. Or Jim Carrey, uh, Eternal... Um, Eternal Sunshine. Sunshine. Yeah. Of the spotless mind. These performances are, if you haven't seen these movies, run to Netflix and find them. Unbelievable movies. But they went against the brand and people didn't come and the word of mouth didn't come past that over and over again because it wasn't what they wanted to see from that artist, even though the artist wanted to portray that and bring it out there. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that you have to look at. Yeah. I, I, I think that if we had been on a pay cable channel without advertisers, it would have helped a great deal with that particular show um, pacing wise and also the way they could have promoted it. You know, I think that it could have been promoted as a different thing Whereas TNT, rightly so, wanted to promote it as, well, raise back on television, you know, and here are these other guys who are, you know, famous as well, uh, uh, Scott Bakula and Andre Brower. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the ads sort of trended a little towards more the comedic sensibility and um, you can, you know, our, our critical, uh, the reviews were fantastic and we were doing exactly the show we wanted to do. And we got, and we had good ratings by the end of the first season, we kind of got a little screwed schedule wise. The second season, they split us up into two different parts. It was already a short season, um, 12 episodes. They split into six a piece. Nobody could find us, you know, we were also, we were on after it's hard to complain. We were on after a show that the closer for the first six, that gets very big ratings. But as you say, audience flow there is just, that's one show and we were a complete other show. And so if you're talking about pay cable, you have a show like girls or enlightened even, which got a couple seasons. It doesn't really matter Numbers matter, but they matter way less. And demos don't matter on the pay cable. You know, they don't care who's watching as long as they're paying to to watch it. For us, for a very leisure, not leisurely, but a, a show with no gunfire, no, uh, you know, killings, no uh, emergencies. It was it was a slice of life. Uh, you know, we're, we think very, you know, we worked very hard on, on the drama of it and, and these the small stories of these guys. And telling what we thought were really relatable stories that that the people who were fans are super fans. But I, you know, I I watched one of our episodes once in a hotel. I didn't, I wasn't home. And um, the commercials, I mean, it was a train wreck because we don't have act breaks that are 
oh my God, I got to see what happens after that commercial. And I could just see people. I saw my show through the eyes of the viewer, the TNT viewer, um, which was just like, well, some stuff happens. Then there's a bunch of commercials and some more stuff happens. And then there's a bunch of commercials. Never a big, holy shit, at the end of the act break. And I got this lesson um, extremely... (laughs) Um, clearly because I was watching my show with my wife, who was a fan of me, I think, and <laughs> the show I know and watching the show and she's like, Oh my God, the fucking commercials. Oh my God, I can't take it. Just, you know, and she's falling asleep, you know, she's falling asleep because we're in bed in a hotel watching the, um, and, oh yeah, it's driving me crazy. So then a show ends, I go over on the computer, she stays in bed and the next show comes on CSI, New York. Never saw an episode of my life, neither did she. I'm on the computer for a long time. I She is the person who falls asleep instantly uh, when a, when something's on that she doesn't like. Instantly. she. I look over. It's near the end. It's an hour's past. I look over. She's like this with CSI New York. Riveted. Yes. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Why are you? And she goes, well, I, I, I want to find out what happens. You know? And that's what a procedural is. That's what that network does well with. And that's what can survive commercials is that kind of programming. I mean, that is what happens in on every network now is you have to find something that can survive the commercials, especially, you know, to get a live number uh, that does any business in this day day and age of the DVRs. You need scandal. You need something that's that's, as you say, holy shit. Every five minutes. So speaking of getting a live number, the latest thing you're working on. <laughs> yeah. Enlisted. Nice segue. <laughs> yeah. I love the way you said, you know, people say the critically acclaimed enlisted. You know, whenever you hear critically acclaimed, what does that mean to you? Nobody's watching. <laughs> so this is what's odd about Fox now. Uh, and Kevin Riley, I, I, you know, I can't even speak hi- more highly as highly as I possibly could about Kevin Riley, the president of uh, entertainment at Fox, just an incredible man and executive. And uh, I, I, I just, he's just amazing. And there are things. And when I do have him here sitting next to me, which he will be here uh, soon, hopefully if, uh, if I could ever get that date out of him. But um, there's two shows that are on the air that I just, for the life of me, uh, one doing really well, yours maybe not doing as well as it could be doing. And I think about, and I'm going to go a little toe to toe with you here. Yes. I'm a fan of the originality of a concept. That means something to me. Right. As an audience member, I'm only one guy, so I don't matter. But to me, that means something to me. And if I see shows that have a concept that I feel like I've seen more than one time, I just automatically am like, I don't, I don't want, I don't want it. I don't want to, I don't want to go. I don't even want to turn it on. Right. And there's two shows on the air, one that's successful where the audience is saying, hey, Barry, you're wrong. We as an audience don't care, which is Brooklyn 99. Yes. Which is a genre of a show that we've seen a shitload of times. 
Not, you know, not recently, but yes, I know. It's, you know what it's I'm a familiar It's a setup. very familiar yes. setup in film and television. <laughs> yes. And the military situation in comedy has been done over and over again throughout time. Very successful many times in movies. Hardly ever successful in television, maybe McHale's Navy or something not like that. Not for a long time. Not for and a not long time. Not many attempts in a long time. Not many attempts. Let me tell but, you. But where, that's not true. Yeah, there was an attempt recently. But anyways, but but yeah. the but so and then I look at Mike Royce and I'm sitting across from Mike Royce, <laughs> right? A guy who all throughout his career has worked on shows that, in my humble opinion have a very, very original point of view and a very original concept. And even Ray, which you could maybe compare certain shows to in a way, but I can't really remember a show before Ray that had that real family dynamic of the of the mother and father living down the street. And I if I can remember yeah. it, I'm losing sight of it. But it wasn't done that often. Where Ray separated himself from the pack with Phil was family shows before that, by and large, had been fairly cheesy, I think. You could say they're, they're, they do well, Roseanne being the exception. But there was... Um, it was a cheesy factor. Yes, yes. So, the, so there you go. Maybe it's just the exceptions that prove, prove the rule. Most of the time, there, there's sort of a f- fluffy family element um, happening. And Ray's, I think Ray and Phil managed to make a smart family show where there was none at that time. That's true. And then you know you did Louie and you wrote for Spin City an episode and you you know why did you decide now again? showrunners get paid a lot of money ladies and gentlemen (laughs) of the jury (coughs) just to let you know out there and i'm not saying that mike makes this or he doesn't make this but if you're an executive producer on a show i mean the lowest amount of money i've ever heard any executive producer making on a show as a showrunner is like 15 to twenty thousand dollars a week on a show hey everybody let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. And so when you get offered a gig to show around a gig, it's like, you know, 
it's 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 showtime. It's it's, it's the, the the money is there, and you're like, oh well, we could put this addition on. We could build a pool right, in the backyard, right. whatever. And if you haven't done schooling. anything in a while that you really necessarily are, you're pitching every year, and you're got your ideas, and you're going out, and you might be getting deals, but it's not getting on the air. And then you're in a position where you can get on the air. Sometimes, in my humble opinion, again, because this show is critically acclaimed. But I don't think the genre right. is critically acclaimed. Right. Sometimes you take gigs for the respect. Sometimes you take gigs for the cash. When I heard you were doing this show, it was like literally watching a Sesame Street episode where they sing the song, One of These Things is Not Like I the understand. Other. Yes. So please tell me. My wife had the same opinion. What um, is going on and why is this the case that you're doing this show? Here's the thing. Um, I'm. It started as an obligation. In other words, I have a deal at 20th. I have to work on something. I had just finished running... 1600 pen, which was also because I had a pilot before that that didn't go. So now I'm on a deal. I got to work on something. They had me run that show. And just so the audience knows, when when an artist who's in front of the camera or a showrunner behind the camera gets a deal and their thing doesn't go, they normally, the network can come to them and say, listen, you have to do this. Now, you can pass on the first one they they offer you. They offer you another one. I believe you can pass on that one. But if you pass on a third one they offer you, you got to give some of the money back. <laughs> right. That's There's, the way the deals work. I've never come close to something like that <laughs> and never will. Um, but no, they, they gave me a few things. And this was... So I read this one. The premise... As you say, sounded like, why would I? It doesn't sound like me. The guy, Kevin Beagle, who wrote it and created it, wrote a script that was, I really appreciated where he was going with it. It started as Stripes and it ended up as MASH. And that's just using broad strokes. But there was a lot of heart. And one thing that I have discovered about myself throughout my writing career now is I guess it's my brand. It's what I like to do. I like to do things with heart and emotion in them. You know, I like comedies. I've always been a fan of those. And that's just what I naturally write. I admire things like 30 Rock, which are just joke, 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 amazing, uh, amazing tour de forces of just pure comedy. I'm I'm not as good at that as I am at writing relatable things and, and things with emotion in them that uh, add to the comedy. This guy was coming from an amazing, sincere place, and you could see it in the script. And so I was like, "Yeah, I'll." I mean, this is you know, I, 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 I'd like to work with this guy. So I got to work. Uh, uh, we worked together on the pilot. We, we rewrote the pilot together. We shot the pilot together. We were partners. Now you know we did. I mean, when you rewrite a pilot, just for our audience, because this is an interesting thing. Just so you know, when you write a script and you register with the Writers Guild. You are the official creator of the show. If you write it with somebody else, both of you are the official creators of the show. If somebody gives you an outline of the story of the show but does not write the show, they are a creator on the show. 
tell our audience what happens when a guy has written an existing script, has submitted it to the Writers Guild, and then you go with him and then you rewrite, do a page one rewrite with him together. Do you get to be the creator of the show or does the Writers Guild say, nah, it's not changed enough? In this case, we, you know, certainly it wasn't a page one and, and we rewrote it together. We did it separately and I would give him pages and, you know, everything when I came on board was this is, I said to him, this is your show. I, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not here to take over the show. You know, I'm here to support your vision and do what I think can complement it. So, but in this case, he's the creator of the show. He had written a script. The script had gotten picked up already by, by Kevin Riley. Um, it, you know, it was created, but he had written the first and many, many drafts up until that point. Um, so I was just sort of, you know, value added. I certainly had a big hand in, in, uh, in shaping it and, and then all the producing of it and the shooting and being on stage and all that stuff. Um, so just to fast forward to sort of the cognitive dissonance of why I'm working on what you may see as Mikhail's Navy 2014. <laughs> um, with heart. With heart. What I think screwed us in terms of attracting people to the show, and I just mean like first impressions are really, really hard to change. I When you see a 10-second ad for a comedy, it may be the only time you see it, and it's going to make you go, nah, I don't think so. Or, yeah, that looks kind of funny. And it's an art form making a promo like that. It's, a, it's, it's done usually more badly than it is well. It's also, I've found in my experience, much easier for dramas. And what Mike's alluding to is that every network, there are departments whose sole job are to cut mini trailers, like film trailers that can be as short as 10 seconds as long as uh, 30 seconds, sometimes networks who are really generous, a <laughs> yeah. minute, but very rare. Yeah. But normally they're between 10 and 15 seconds long. And so and you have to get across what the show is in those times. And a lot of times you, the creators don't have any control over the promo department. They don't even get to see them beforehand. You can't get it written into your contract that you get to be a part of creating those promos and you're at the mercy of the network. Yes. And they're doing their best. I think a lot of times, sometimes what happens is the thing that gets the thing sold is the thing that screws you later. And I just mean the familiar concept that everyone in the room's like, oh my God, a new Stripes. That sounds amazing. Like we haven't seen, you know, Stripes is 30 years old. Let's see that on TV. There hasn't been anything like that on television. <clears throat> you know, that, that, and, and yet it's a concept that people get. It's a genre they haven't seen in a long time, you know. Um, we made a pilot with some very Stripesy moments. If you see... You know, the majority of the 10 second promos for that show when we premiered, the majority of the clips that people saw were like a fat guy being pushed up a wall, um, essentially stripes, you know, light. And I think that they were they, in their minds, they were right to do that because this is the familiar concept that's going to in a perfect world. This is what's going to attract people. Oh, I like stripes. I want to see that. I think what ended up happening is it reduced the show down to what was essentially a minute of the most broad, you know, it's not the show. The show isn't, isn't that it's a little bit of that with a whole bunch of other things. It's really about these three brothers 
also this misfit platoon, but it's about a whole part of the army that no one knows anything about, and it has a lot of emotion in it, and, and it has um, it, it's way more character based than the wacky hijinks that you saw in the ten second promo. And I think people rightly made a lot of judgments of like, yeah, I don't, that looks like lame stripes. I'm not going to watch that. Couple that with the fact that we launched on a Friday at nine thirty after a show. Our lead in was a point eight. And the lead-ins basically just went down after that. Um, we we really had no shot. And it makes me mad because we deserve a shot. Anybody who actually has seen the episodes, 90% of the people, you know, you see the critics, 90% of people who actually see the show see the quality, see how hard we work, see that it's not just a fat guy on a wall uh, and, and lame-o stripes. And what about your biggest critic? What does she say? My wife or... Your wife. <laughs> or Dana Walden. <laughs> Dana Walden being <laughs> one of the co-chairmen and presidents of the 20th Century Fox. My wife really... I can't remember if I had to read the script. I think I did. And I think she was like, I don't know why you're doing this. You know, I don't get it. It doesn't seem like you. Now she's you know, the, the biggest fan of the show, she can't believe how good she loves it. And she's now, you know, she gets mad for me, like, why don't they give you a better time slot? You know? And it's been a little hard to take because pretty much every other show on Fox this season has gotten some kind of shot. And we got very clearly defined no shot. I don't think it was meant out of malice. I don't think it was that they wanted something to die over there. I think there were a lot of things about our lead-in that, that happened because of reasons that were out of our control. But things take on a life of their own. And we ended up in this spot that didn't get us any traction. Now what we have hope, our last final hope, um, but still hope, they embargoed our last four episodes on purpose. They're four of our strongest ones um, because it wasn't working on Friday. And they're looking for a place to put it before the upfronts that somebody can see it. And just get it some kind of sampling so that we just, we haven't had any opportunity to get a real number. You know, normally what you're complaining about with a, with a new show is they put us behind X great hit and then took us away after three weeks. You know, they, they move you too soon. We never even got the big hit to begin with. We got immediately put behind something that wasn't doing well to begin with. And you can't launch that way. There's just no way. You know, that, you know, so if the show doesn't get picked up, are you going to be anxious about whether anybody's going to hire you again? Or are you going to know that your pattern is that everyone wants to work with you? This is I, I don't know what other other people I, I, I know some people are interested. I don't I'm not a fearful like I was after Lucky Louie, because now what I've learned First of all, there's two principles at work. Let's pretend that Lucky Louie was a piece of shit. <laughs> Just pretend for a second. You'd have to really, really pretend. <laughs> <clears throat> that doesn't matter. Like I, uh, my biggest advice to anyone who is a writer who wants to become a showrunner is if you have the opportunity to run a show, take it. Because they don't, what happens is not, he ran that piece of shit. That's not what they say. They say, he ran that piece of shit. He's a showrunner now that you get the credit and then you continue to do that. You can suck at it, 
you know, but the show surviving or not surviving is not necessarily the biggest consideration. It's more that you did that job and hopefully you did it well, which I think that I did. The other thing that is uh, for me, the thing that matters the most that continues to get you work is just always try to do good work. People in the broadcast business, even where they're trying to get the giant number all the time, they still want to work with people who do quality stuff. So if you end up with a good show that nobody watched, well, those people still know it was a good show. Maybe nobody else does. But the people in the rooms that you're meeting in, they still see that, you know, you did something good and they would rather work with someone who does something good than than bad. That's true. That's true. <laughs> All right. Uh, tell me uh, throughout your career, tell me that moment. That would be the highlight chapter of your book, that holy shit moment that all the stories in your life are drowning in the ocean. You can only save one that no one would believe and is not documented or something that happened that anyone would want to be a fly on the wall and see that particular thing or how it went down or what it was or what you remember. Um, you know, I, I would have to, this is not exactly a, Theatrical moment, but you know, I mean, first, first of all, getting Peabody was a, was a like out of body experience. That was very odd. And, you know, I can't be prouder of that. Um, especially since we got canceled like a month later, <laughs> it was, it was really something to see. Um, I think the moment that I always go back to that just makes me feel warm inside is that we worked on men of a certain age for a very, very long time. We developed it, Ray and I. And it was its own thing always. It was never, people would always say, well, what is it? Well, we don't, it just kind of comes out the way it is. Is it a comedy? Well, there's comedy in it. Could never really define it. So we were really, really nervous about how people were going to receive it. We didn't know what people were going to think. And it was like two years of Ray and I just living with it ourselves, filming it, refilming some stuff. And just thinking this could come out after all this time and somebody could just go, what the fuck is this? What is it? It's three guys. And we, we'd always joke to each other. Like people would just go, well, the three guys are just walking around doing like, what are they, what is the point? What is the you know, reason we called them out of a certain age was just to give somebody a framework about it because we were just afraid people would go, what? It? I don't, I don't even understand what this is supposed to be. So I'm driving into Paramount where we shot the show. And uh, I just remember Ray calling me and it was the first review of the show had come out. It was Entertainment Weekly. And of course, he's uh, got a gambling mind. So he's like, what do you think it is? He's trying to make me guess. What's the, what do you think the grade is? And I, I really, in my head, the way Ray plays it and he knows how to, he has a good poker face, this could be an F and he's fucking with me <laughs> or an A. And I just, I'm, I'm like sweating, just like not knowing what this is after all this time. What does somebody think about this? And I guessed, I just, I don't know, a B. And he goes, A minus, <laughs> A minus. And I had this feeling come over me like, holy shit, we did something good. Like people like it. Huh? And, and I just. Your and, Sally Field moment. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> after all that time. And then there were a lot of good reviews after that. And I hate to just, you know, live and die in reviews. But in that case, it was like we badly needed validation. <laughs> and it came through in that moment. Awesome. Well, we already got your proudest moment in that story about the Peabody Award. So tell me what your greatest disappointment in show business has been so far. 
oh, well, I mean, I have to say the cancellation of, <laughs> of men of a certain age, just because that, while there were a lot of factors that led into it, and if I were a bitter man, I would say that we were getting the same ratings that Dallas is now, if I was bitter. Did you and Ray get if the phone call? You're not, yes. you're not bitter, of course. I'm not bitter because, honestly speaking, Michael Wright. Tell me about that phone call with Michael. You know, it was, it was horrible. He called. He so you're on a, so you're on a, so you're on a conference call with him. No, it was way worse. I was at home, and they called me, and Ray was on the golf course on TV. He's on a televised golf thing while the show is being canceled. So I'm like, so Michael calls me and has the very hard conversation. Tell us about the conversation. Because he, he's, you know, Michael is one of the greatest executives there is in, yes. in the world. He started as an actor, like Les Moonves did. They have a, he has a feeling about talent. He has a feeling about the way things are going to be. And he's just an amazing man. So talk about Absolutely. that call. He, um, and Steve and all the people around them were fighting. They wanted nothing more than that show to continue. <clears throat> At that moment, for reasons that, you know, are, are for reasons that I can blame them for and also, you know, aren't their fault, the number wasn't there. Um, we've been through all this. They've been trying to keep our spirits up. They had extended the option for the actors another month to try and get more ratings to hopefully you know, get something that was a little hopeful. All that had come, came and went. It was the last day that they had their options. The Academy, uh, sorry, the Emmy Awards had just been announced. Our only hope really was if we somehow got nominated for an Emmy. Andre Brower did, the show did not. Um, even though he had won a Peabody, he had to call me with all this like uh, knowledge and he just said, I'm sorry, but we're not going forward, you know. And he, I, he said, I, I tried and tried and tried, and I know that he did, you know, and there's just, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm banging my head against the wall. And, you know, he has people above him. There's Steve. There's people above Steve. Um, Time Warner is a giant corporation. Um, and, uh, you know, he said at that time, you know, maybe if you want to do a movie, which wasn't of interest to us, it was a little later, but it didn't quite work out. Um and, you know, um, I'm sorry. And uh, at that moment, we didn't, I didn't, of course, bring up trying to move it somewhere else. But uh, they actually, you know, we tried. It was too expensive at that point to move somewhere else. Going into a third season, people's salaries sometimes go up. I'm sure all that could have been re renegotiated. But the bottom line is it wasn't uh, a big, a good fit anywhere, really. Um and so he was very supportive. I mean, he was, he was very nice. And I, this wasn't a case of, uh, he was, he was very upfront, you know, he was very communicative. That's all you want from somebody like that is he doesn't, uh, he doesn't not call you and have you find out, you know? Uh, so he was extremely, yes, communicative and, and, you know, nice about it. And, and sour, 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 sour what am I saying? Sour, roll, sour, roll That's what I'm trying to say. Um, they're extremely nice. After that, they made a, you know, they bought everybody. I mean, you get a Peabody, but there, you can pay for other people to have who were associated with the show to have an award or a certificate. They like made sure everybody on the crew and, you know, very writers and, you know, they're very generous that way. And, um, first class company. Yeah. Totally great. All right. So last question. Um, it's a two part question. What advice do you have for the 
young comedian who's <laughs> struggling watching a musical trying to figure out <laughs> what the hell they're going to do in this business and how to become somebody who can be not only a great performer but a great writer a great showrunner and a great executive from the humble beginnings of working late nights at a comedy club or somewhere out there in the world or for anybody in any profession starting to getting to where you've gotten in your career? You know, I think I, I can only speak for myself. So if there's anybody who's like me out there, I, I think that, like I said about being fearful, I'm not your go-to, oh my God, this guy's like a force of nature. He gets in the room and it's crazy. He can win over anybody. I'm not that guy. <laughs> I am an incremental, hardworking, hopefully have some talent. Um, but I have discovered even, you know, both with stand-up and with writing, that it's it's much more for me about like a sculpture. It's like you start with a block of nothing. If you're writing a script, you can work for a day or two on it and you're only going to chip off. You're still going to have a blob and you can get very discouraged. Like it's not great yet. It's not anything. It's never going to be anything. Fuck me. Oh my God. Who am I? I'm going to go drink. That's, you know, I, my mentality can be to be in my head defeatist. And I think, what I've hopefully overcome, you know, uh, and the thing that I always have to train myself to overcome is that every piece of it is a piece of the puzzle, you know, or a part of the sculpture. It takes so many moves, you know, for TV shows, there's so many meetings and casting and, and everything is one piece and, and the show can live or die sometimes on that particular piece. You have to approach every day, like I'm taking care of a piece of it today. It's not all of it. It's not the whole thing does not depend on this, you know, it, 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 that you that it's it's you have to take care of every little piece is what I'm trying to say and not every piece all at once. You know, that's especially true with scripts because you spend so much time in the wilderness with a script trying to come up with even what the hell it is that you can it can make you discouraged so you don't ever attempt it. And uh, you just have to keep, okay, today I, you know, I managed to get three good lines in that character's mouth. Lines that you may take out two weeks later. Uh, you know, a month from now, I figured out that the setting is this. You know, some days you're like, I got eight hours and I wrote, you know, 10 pages. Every day is totally different. And um, it's all progress. That's really, I guess, what I have to, had to tell myself over and over and, you know what I would tell to the young, slightly depressed, bald man out there. <laughs> or woman. <laughs> this has been really amazing. And uh, today, Mike Royce, <laughs> you did win over our audience. <laughs> and you were a force of nature. I appreciate that. And I'm very grateful can you I send this to the studios or yeah. You can do whatever. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you. It was great. Great to be here. 
As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.